Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 4. Uh, this is our final message in Genesis 4. We had a couple of weeks off. Uh, two weeks ago, um, we had a shortened service, so I uh, did a burden message on the question, what if Jesus came today? And then last week, uh, Missionary Schrock was here, and he preached for us in the morning service. So we're, we, we are a little bit uh, distant from what we had been talking about before, but remember that we were walking through the line of Cain. And I'll spend a little bit of time reviewing that today so that you can get back up to, to, to speed on it. But all throughout our study in Genesis, we have been considering checkpoints in the development of the world as we know it today. We talked about time. We talked about space. We talked about matter. We talked about the seven-day week. We talked about man's purpose and his value to God and thus one to another. We talked about the institution of marriage. We talked about the promise of a redemptive seed. We talked about procreation. We talked about sin. And as we saw first with Cain and then second with Lamech, the effects of the sin nature upon those first generations of men and uh, the, the, the bringing about of of uh, violence and wickedness on the earth, of which we'll see, will kind of come to a head as we get to Genesis chapter uh, 6 in a couple of weeks. Um, first, of course, we have to walk through a little bit about this other seed. Uh, it's not only, however, the legacy of sin and its effects upon the world. We're tracing the legacy of sin and its effects upon the world. We're tracing uh, righteousness and unrighteousness as it relates to man. But as we'll also see, and, and we'll see particularly in, in the days of Noah, there's also a clash of kingdoms happening. There is God's claim uh, and, and his kingdom, and there's Satan's claim and his kingdom. And of course, we've talked about that somewhat already, this twofold theme, first of, of, of God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, and then of righteousness and wickedness upon the earth. For today, we're going to keep things a little bit more simple. Again, we'll get a little more complicated as we get closer to Noah. And that's because of the method of how we're walking through the text. Remember that it is my goal to help us understand the text um, as well, and, and the way I've been, the method we've been using is that we're walking through the text as if you'd never read the Bible before, as if you were unfamiliar, and as if all of these things were being introduced to us for the first time. And the reason, the, the, the strategy there, the reason why I'm asking or encouraging you to try to think through it in that way is not because the rest of the Bible doesn't matter. Much to the contrary, it's very important that we backfill our, our knowledge of the rest of the Bible into Genesis as we learn of these things. But if, if we take Genesis at face value, if we say, okay, this is an introduction to God, this is an introduction to the workings of God, then it rewires our brains as it relates to not what we are going to draw out of the text, but what we can understand God is trying to get across. And there's many vagaries in Genesis 1 through 11, many things that are not spelled out quite as explicitly as they otherwise could be. But when we understand who God is and we understand what he's doing and we understand the purpose of Genesis, if we take it as literal, if we take it as narrative, then what we do is as we read it at that way, as we read it as an introduction of sorts, we can actually see the themes that God is building here, the themes that are being put together. And these themes become very, very important. They become important to us as we seek to understand what God is trying to say. They become important because it sets the direction that we begin to interpret the word of God. And then it also becomes important when we get to Jesus, because Jesus is going to be in, in many ways, the culmination of these themes. Jesus is the culmination of these themes. And if we haven't identified these themes, then we're going to miss bits of exactly what Jesus came to do and what he taught and why he taught the way he taught. So 
all of the, the, the word of God is important, but allowing ourselves to have this perspective whereby we, 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 we uh, approach the scriptures with a measure of simplicity can also give us thus a clarity as it relates to God's intent. And so at this point in our text, we have been tracing two men, right? The children of Adam and Eve. They, are, they have the same mother. They have the same father. Their names are Cain and Abel. Both of these men have a sin nature. Both lived in the very same environment. Both had the same parents. But these two men made very different choices. One, Abel, chose to worship God in truth, chose to worship God in love. The other, Cain, as we have studied, chose to dispose his heart toward himself rejecting even the appeal of God to do well when God comes to him and lovingly, graciously, patiently says, why are you angry? Why are you wroth? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And we emphasize that quite a bit, but it's worth saying one more time and maybe even solidifying in a different way, maybe in a more formal way. I told you I was going to do this in Sunday school. And I'd like to solidify this idea a little bit more through the New Testament, through Romans. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the Bible says this, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doeth the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up, uh, uh, up unto thyself, excuse me, wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respecter of persons with God. So Paul is writing to the church that is in Rome here, in Romans chapter 2. And in Romans 1, he has just spoken about the wrath of God falling upon those who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which do wickedness are worthy of death, not only do such things, but take pleasure in them that do them. And he warns this group of readers, as they contemplate the wickedness of the world around them, they who are in the church, as we are sitting in a church this morning, he, he warns them against elevating themselves at the expense of unbelievers who live in defiant wickedness, knowing that the judgment of God for the deeds of the flesh will indeed fall upon believer and unbeliever alike. We will all stand before the judge and give an account, with the notable exception being that those who are in Christ will be recipients of God's grace. So we will all give an account for the things that we've done in our bodies. That's when the books are open. We'll talk about that in our evening uh, service. I believe it's this week. But then another book is open, and that book is the book of life. And whosoever is not found written in that book is cast in the lake of fire. That book is written on the basis of those who have believed or not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
And yet, when it comes to the judgment of the books, we will all stand and be judged for the things that we have done in our bodies. And within this warning, we see an important concept right at the end here in verse 11, that whether Jew or Gentile, God will deal with every man according to his choices. There's no genetic, there's no familial, there's no cultural favor with God, there's no respect of persons with God. Much to the contrary, Psalm 34 verse 18 tells us, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. He would say again in Psalm 51, in David's great hymn of repentance and confession, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, that will not despise. God is not swayed by your bloodline. God is not swayed by your associations, by your genetics. God will not show you mercy simply because your parents did good things. God will not show you mercy because you associate yourself with people that have, have found mercy with God. God is not a respecter of persons. God disposes himself to people in relation to their choices before him. And the specific choice reflected in being brokenhearted and contrite is not the idea. When we think of the idea of a brokenhearted person, we think of a person who is broken because of the circumstances that have, have faced them in life. That if someone has a broken heart, it's a broken heart because they have been betrayed or because they have been shamed or because they have uh, um, been violently attacked or whatever it might be. But that's not the idea here of a broken heart. When the Bible talks about the idea of a broken heart, it actually is the same here. Uh, we, we see them in parallel as a contrite heart. That is a heart that is humble. That is a heart that is repentant. That is a heart that when it disposes itself toward God, it looks at the things of God, the word of God, the, the things that God has said in his word, and he has submitted himself to those things, recognizing that God is true, that God is right, that I am a sinner, but God is holy, that God has truth, and that I have predisposed within my deceitful heart error. And so the person with a humble with a contrite, with a broken heart, is the person who sees himself for who he really is in light of who God is. And so he has humbled himself before God. He has acknowledged his insufficiency to be or to do anything to be pleasing in God's sight. And of course, that leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ, where we recognize that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves, that Jesus was pleasing in God's sight for us. And as we come with that humble heart, as we come with that contrite heart, as we come with that broken heart before the Lord, and we say, Jesus is the one who took my, my shame. Jesus is the one who took my pain. Jesus is the one who took my burden. Jesus is the one who paid for my sin. Then that humility before the gospel of Jesus Christ is what then God favors. That brings the Lord nigh unto me, for the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 5, in the great Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, and he would go on. These are the expressions of humility, of broken heartedness, of a contrite heart. And it's really well, best summed up perhaps by James in James 4, 6 when he says, God resists the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. And, and while we, we just confirm this idea through the Psalms and, and through Romans, that idea, that idea that God, there's no respecter of persons with God, that God takes each man where he is according to how he disposes himself toward God, according, according to how he aligns his heart with God. We're not talking just about physical actions. We're talking about the way that a man directs his heart unto the Lord. That God will not just accept a man because he brings a sacrifice, but as he positions himself rightly before God, as he has the broken and the contrite heart, God will then accept that man. And this is the first introduction to that principle here with Cain and Abel. Now, as we get further into the text, we'll see that this principle plays out in amazing ways. Now, not just the direct text, but as you walk through the Old Testament, you see this time and time again that there's no respecter of person with, God's, uh, with God, that, that, that as people interact with God, even among nations where God has cursed that nation for their wickedness, you see that there might be individuals within that nation who dispose themselves properly toward God, who humble themselves before His truth, and they are delivered from that nation rather than being judged and destroyed with that nation. Where men, having every opportunity to do right, on the other hand, living under a legacy of others who did right, will make unrighteous choices. And so they will not be able to carry forth in that righteous manner, but they will be counted among the unrighteous. Reminding us that our path before God is defined not by our associations, not by our genetics, not by... But by, by any of those externalities, it is defined by our choices. You want to be right with God? You will not be able to be right with God by proxy of being right with someone who's right with God. If you want to be right with God, that's up to you. That is for you, you to decide. And only you can make that decision. It all comes down to a choice. So then we trace this twofold path, right? Not necessarily a path of blood. We are tracing it at this time through blood. We're tracing the path of Cain, who chose to do wrong. And then we trace the path of Abel, who chose to do right. And we see that divergence of paths. And then we see one of those paths end very quickly, because Cain kills Abel. And when Cain killed Abel, yes, he killed his brother because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Yes, we see the propensity in the heart of man to cover the shame of our own sin by hating the workers of righteousness. But there's something bigger happening here as well related to the choices of these two men. And that's what the text is going to introduce to us today. I'm going to try to give you a, a broader view of something that is going to become very, very important thematically. As a matter of fact, it's the very essence of why the nation of Israel will exist throughout the Old Testament, why the Old Testament traces the nation of Israel, what that has to do with Jesus, where we relate to it today. Again, we'll get into all that when we talk about Noah. But all of those things are going to start to form today in verses 25 and 26 of Genesis chapter 4. So last time we were together, we traced this line, right? We traced the line of unrighteousness through Cain, the line of men who had their portion in this life, the men who loved the pleasures of this life more than they loved God. And now we get to trace the line of righteousness. And of course, that line of righteousness will not be traced through Abel. It cannot be traced through Abel because that line was destroyed. And we'll talk about the, the nature of that destruction, not just in the fact that Cain was angry at his brother, not just in the fact that Cain hated the worker of righteousness, but even to the very idea of, of Satan trying to destroy the seed of the woman. That when God said in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And then he, he, he said that, that next phrase, which we talked about quite a bit, 
and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And remember, as we were talking about that phrase, we talked about the potential meanings of that phrase, and we said that there's some ambiguity there. We said it's possible that uh, the pronoun here, the pronoun reference, unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him, that that his pronoun reference was referencing sin, that if Cain does well, that he would rule over sin, but that the other possibility, and the one that I actually favor, is that this is speaking of the relationship between Cain and his brother Abel. And as we walk through biblical history, we see that God predisposes the firstborn son in any family unto the inheritance and the spiritual blessing within the structure of the family. So that the firstborn son would be the son who would receive the inheritance. He would receive the double portion. He would receive the blessing of the Lord upon him. He was expected to be the one to carry forward the the lineage of that family. But as we see through examples such as Ishmael and Isaac, such as Esau and Jacob, that this natural position and opportunity whereby the firstborn has the opportunity to be the one through whom God would continue his work can be forfeited by choices, right? So Esau was profane and he forfeited the right to be the one through whom God would work because he was a profane man, even though he was the older brother. And Ishmael, uh, a little bit different with him because uh, he was... A, a mistake by Abraham stepping outside of faith, but he was the older son of Abraham, and yet he was not the one that God would choose through whom to work. And then, of course, here with Cain as well. We see that Cain had the natural and the inherent right to be the one through whom the promised seed would come. The one that God promised, we'll talk about in a moment, in Genesis chapter three fifteen, would come. But God was not just going to give Cain that right simply because Cain existed. If Cain rejects That right, through rejecting obedience, God would give it to someone else, namely to Abel. So, it's possible that God is saying here in Genesis 4, verse 7, that unto Cain would be Abel's desire, that if Cain does well, that just as it did with Adam and Eve, Abel would be in submission to his brother, God's design for him to submit to his elder brother and that Cain would be able to take this role that God had ordained for him to carry forth the seed. And that is the idea rooted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God promised there would be one, the seed of a woman who would bruise the head of the serpent, specifically Satan. And as we trace this through, God promises that there would come a child. That child would come from the woman the woman, was deceived, the woman that was deceived into eating the fruit. This child was said to, that it would destroy the one who led Adam, who, who precipitated Adam, thus rebelling and falling to sin. And you can imagine that when Adam and Eve bore Cain, the thing that would be going through their mind would be, is this the seed? Is this the one who would carry righteousness forward and bruise the head of the serpent. And then they had Abel, and Abel was their second born. But then as they grew, they would perhaps recognize that of those two men, Abel was the one that was actually following in righteousness. That Cain would not be the one, but Abel would be the one to carry righteousness forward because Abel had made the choice to serve and love the Lord. And that may have been in their minds until Cain killed him. 
And so now you don't have the seed anymore. The one who was intended to carry forth that righteous line because he had chosen through a, a broken heart and a contrite heart to serve the Lord and to do what is right is dead. And all you have left is the unrighteous line of Cain. And it would seem that unrighteousness won. Unrighteousness carried the day. The serpent was victorious. The servant of Satan was successful at destroying the line of righteousness, at destroying the seed. And that's the question. Had righteousness failed? Had righteousness failed? Now, now thematically, what we find is that the darkness definitely was attempting to bring about the failure of righteousness. That Satan was attempting to, even in that first generation, bring about the preeminence of his kingdom by destroying the one through whom God's kingdom could and would reign. And that's the question. Did Satan just successfully thwart God's purposes? And that question is answered today in this brief two-verse passage that we're going to study. Abel is dead. God curses Cain. We trace Cain for seven generations, ending with the sons of Lamech. Uh, Lamech's Song of the Sword, as we talked about it a few weeks ago, seemingly threatened, uh, brought about a, 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 depending on how we interpret it, right? And I told you that there are a few different interpretations. But it's, it's very possible that the interpretation of Lamech's Song of the Sword here in Genesis chapter 4, uh, uh, verses 23 and 24, is the idea that Lamech was willing to use his son's innovations in brass and iron to threaten the world with violence. And that will happen in short order. We'll read about that in Genesis 6. So that though it may not read like it to the casual reader, we actually find ourselves in Genesis chapter 4 in a very, very dark moment in human history. At the end of Genesis chapter 4, we have traced Cain's line seven generations. They are still wicked. They are becoming innovative in their wickedness. They are uh, being inventors of, of evil things. Wickedness has dominated that line, and the other line, the righteous line, the line through whom the seed was supposed to come, was killed. And then we come to Genesis 20, uh, 4, verses 25 and 26, where we read this. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God said, she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth and to him, excuse me, and to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So Adam and Eve have another child. The Bible says that this is another son and that they called his name Seth. Now, not every name in the Bible has a important meaning. But the names early on often do have very important meanings. When Adam was given the woman, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2.23 that she would be called woman because she was taken out of man, indicating that her, not, not her name, but her title in this case, woman was not her name, woman was her title, had significance and meaning. Then again, when the woman was given a name, when Adam named her Eve, the language says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, indicating that her name was intentionally given to her for a very specific reason 
And that linguistic clue would then encourage us to go look up what her name means, and it means life bearer, because she is the mother of all living, right? She is the life bearer, showing how intricately her, the idea that she is a woman and a wife would be connected to the idea of a role as a mother, how important women would be to the history, to history as those who would bring the next generation into this world, so that the woman was quite literally defined, her name was given, she was defined as a life bearer, as one who would bring the next generation of the world into being. And history, of course, bears that out in life and in society. Any society that does not regard the woman's importance in childbearing is, is a doomed society. Because in a society where there's a denial of that essential part of a woman's nature, there is a denial of an essential part of God's design and the very fabric of humanity, specifically womanhood. So it makes sense that she would be named, in, uh, that, that her name would reflect this essential part of her, her purpose. And here we have the third time where we see a name have a truly essential meaning. We saw it with woman, we saw it with Eve, and then here we see it again with Seth. When Adam and Eve called their son Seth, they did so very intentionally. The name Seth means substitute. This is explained in the text that Eve, when they named him, recognized that he was given to them as a substitute for Abel, whom Cain slew. But notice exactly how she says it. God said she hath appointed me another seed. Genesis has already defined the concept of a seed for us. It does not just mean offspring. It will eventually just mean offspring. But when the Bible is talking about seed, and this is an important concept that we would carry into Galatians when, 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 uh, when um, Paul is talking about the seed as well. Here in early Genesis, as the promised one would be given a part of overcoming the power of the wicked one, this idea of the seed is rooted in that promise of God. That when they say God has given another seed, it does not just mean we lost a son and now we have another son. It is that we lost the one who was the righteous one, not, not in that he was sinlessly perfect, but in that he was the one who was following God and that through him can come this, the, the promised seed. And when he was killed... That promise was removed in him, but God has given us someone else who can carry forward the line of righteousness. So that Eve recognized immediately that God had ordained another seed who would choose righteousness and so be able to continue the line through which the seed of the woman could come and bruise the head of the serpent. So now we have a new line. And that new line is the line of Seth. Now, verse 26 traces the line of Seth only to his son named Enos. Next time in Genesis chapter 5, we will trace that line all the way down to Noah. But uh, as, as we, we finish chapter 4, we, we stop here for a very particular reason. And that is because here we can see a contrast, not so much between the posterity of Cain and the posterity of Seth. We'll, we'll get there but to, to see the contrast between Cain himself and Seth himself. 
Cain's line became men who had their portion in this life, devoting their time and their energy to advancing the things of this world. We saw that. We traced through the seventh generation of Cain, where in the seventh generation of Cain, we see these sons, Tubal-Cain being this artificer of brass and iron, and then Lamech using that as a predisposition to continue his wickedness. But then we come to Seth's line. And we see Seth, and we see Enos. And then in, in these days, the Bible says right there at the end of Genesis 26, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Do you see the contrast? Even outside of just the wickedness, Cain's line, as we think of Tubal-Cain, as we think of Jabal, as we think of Jubal, they had devoted themselves to the things of this life. They had devoted themselves to building culture, to building cities, to building instruments, to building weapons. They had devoted themselves to the things of this life. They had poured themselves into the things of this life. But then what is the legacy of Cain and of his son? Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And this is thematically what Genesis is attempting to do here. Thematically, we see a group of men who have devoted themselves because they, their portion is only in this life. They see only with eyes for that which this life has to offer. So they devoted themselves to the things of this life. And to be quite honest, they excelled in that. They excelled in the things of this life. They built those things. Uh, they built those cities. They built those instruments. They, they did those things. But then we contrast that with those who had their portion in the life to come, those who began to call upon the name of the Lord. Two decisions, two paths, two directions that would inevitably come into conflict. And that is the setup that verses 25 and 26 afford us. But it's not just there to recount the history of this split in the families. It's there to give us insight into the reality of the divergence in our lives today. Every person on this earth rests in one of these two camps. Now, I'm not saying every single person is either, um, either comes from Cain or comes from Abel. Nope, every single person here either comes from Shem, Ham, or Japheth, right? Cain and Abel, that's pre-flood. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is each person, not just in this room, but in this world, carries forward one of these two legacies. The legacy of those who have their portion in this life or the legacy of the portion of, of those who have their portion in the life that is to come. You are either, here, either among those who have a broken and a contrite heart, a heart which God will not despise and unto whom God is near, or you will be among those who have their portion in this life. There is no in-between. There is no neutrality on that issue. And as we have seen with Cain and with Abel, as we see with Seth, as we see with their posterity, this comes down to Choices. Choices that chart for us a course. And this has been the way it's been since the beginning of history. And that's what I want us to see thematically today. I took a bit of a roundabout way to get there because I wanted to lay that foundation, but that's what we see. Thinking through this twofold idea, this twofold track, those that are of a broken and contrite heart who call upon the name of the Lord and those who have their portion in this life. And that leads us to three concluding thoughts today within the text. The first thing that I want us to think of is, number one, that God will never despise a contrite heart. We already considered the promise that there's no respecter of persons with God. 
that God does not despise the humble and the contrite heart. But this cannot be stressed enough, Christian. If you're ever confused as to what in the course of action, any action, any decision, any reaction, if you're ever confused as to which one the Lord would have you to do when you're interacting with, with, with your wife, when you're interacting with your children, when you're interacting with one another in this church, when you're interacting with your neighbor, when you're interacting with your boss, when you're interacting in any of these circumstances, if you're ever not sure of the way that you ought to go, God will never despise humility, ever. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God will never reject the impoverished heart, the heart that sets itself aside for others, the heart that sets itself aside for the Lord's word. God will never despise humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Psalm 115, verse 1, the Bible says this, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. This kind of a spirit, a spirit of determined humility, a spirit of determined submission, this is the heart of the man who has recognized who he is in light of who God is, and this is the heart of a man whom the Lord accepts. This was the heart which Abel had, indicated by the Lord accepting his offering. This is the heart which Seth had which his son Enos had in that, in, that, in that their generation, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Men began to seek unto the Lord as their strength, as their direction. Men began to crave unto and seek unto a relationship with the living God. Not in Cain's generations who devoted themselves to the things of this life, but incest generations, men who called upon the name of the Lord with an eye toward the life that was to come. And this is indeed contrasted with Cain's generation and contrasted with our second thought. We live in among a gener- the generation who have their portion in this life. And I'm not just talking about us in this time and in this place. Every generation, there are two paths. In every generation, Christians are living among those who have their portion in this life. Christians are those who have been called out of that to a different perspective, who have chosen to believe the word of God and so to come out from those that have their portion in this life and direct ourselves unto something different. This phrase, those who have their portion in this life, is actually drawn from a psalm, from David's words in Psalm 17, verses 13 and 14, where he wrote this, Arise, O Lord, Disappoint him, cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword, from men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world, which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasures. They are full of children and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. The concept here is that when a man determines his thoughts, his actions, and intentions, when he determines in those various realms of his life to go one way or another, what he is doing is he's choosing between the life that is and the life that is to come. When a man sees only with the eyes of what is in front of him, with what he feels and what he sees and what will make him happy now, when he has no regard for the life that is to come, 
when he is simply worried about and focused upon earning, upon gaining, upon pleasure, upon things. This is the legacy. This is one who has his portion in this life. This is the legacy of those that we would see through Cain and his posterity. Again, we're not necessarily talking about the legacy of men who were overtly and objectively wicked. We're not talking about, in this world, those who are just murderers and thieves. We're talking about people who have no vision for the life that is to come. Many of those people are moral people, kind people, people that work hard. But they're moral and they're kind and they're working hard for the things of this life, not for the things of the life to come. And just as much as the legacy of Cain was a legacy that we will see will will devolve into murder and violence and wickedness and and debauchery, we also see in in the legacy of Cain here in Genesis chapter 4 a legacy of people who, there's no record of them doing wicked and terrible things, but it's a record of people who devoted themselves only to this life. We talk about the difference of being in this world and of this world. That we are to be in the world, but not of the world. In our first John evening series recently, we've uh, covered John 13 through 17, where Jesus is talking to his disciples about what to expect when he leaves. And in John 17, in that great prayer for his disciples, Jesus uh, prayed and he said, I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from evil, from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And what, what I, I, and I, I think I'm, I'm struggling to express this today, but what I'm attempting to express is this. When we divide the legacy of the world as it is moving from generation to generation, we have a tendency to simply divide it among the lines of the moral and the immoral, among those who are doing good things and those who are not doing good things. But that is not the line that God draws. The line that God draws is the line between those who have their portion in this life and those who have their portion in the life to come. Those who, re- who, who live for this life, no matter how moral they are, no matter how hard they're, they're, they're doing to do good things in this life, it is for this life, as opposed to those who are living for the life that is to come, who are doing what they're doing. And that doesn't mean that you sell everything you have and you live in rags and you go live on a hill somewhere and you don't have any possessions. But what it means is that you are not living by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that you are living for the things of the life that is to come, that you are living in light of the promises of the life that is to come, that you are among those who in your generation call upon the name of the Lord and live according to that rule of life. And why? Well, because God's kingdom shall come and God's will shall be done. Many of you are familiar with that phrase. It comes from the model prayer of Jesus in Matthew 6, oftentimes called the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. When Seth was born, Eve said, God has given us another seed. Recognizing that Abel had been killed because his works were righteous, And that there was another seed that must be born to carry forward 
this legacy of those that have their portion in the life that is to come. Those who are living for the promise of Messiah's coming. Those who are living in light of God's word. And the reason why Adam and Eve felt this way, and the reason why Seth became that seed, and the reason why Enos was born and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord, and then as we walk next week in Genesis chapter 5 through their posterity, the reason why Enoch was translated, the reason why Lamech gave the prophecy that he did of his son Noah, the reason why Noah was who he was in his generation was because these men had an eye not just toward the things of this life, not just toward the portion of this life, but they had an eye on on the fact that this life was only a step along the journey, that they were moving to something more, and not just something more, but something more real, more important, more valid, more truly tangible than anything that you can see with your eyes today, anything that you can feel with your hands today, anything you can hear with your ears today, anything you can taste with your mouth today. That there's coming another kingdom, and that that kingdom is the kingdom. That kingdom is God's kingdom. And God has promised that kingdom. And for we who believe that promise, we, do, we can't afford to have our portion in this life. Because this life is but a blink along the journey of eternity that will be resting in the kingdom of God. There is a kingdom conflict that was taking place going all the way back to Cain and Abel that is still taking place today. And that kingdom conflict is among the truth claims of God that, where he says there is a kingdom coming and you want to align yourself with me so that you can be a part of that kingdom and the truth claims of Satan that say eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And each one of us, every day, we are making decisions. And those decisions are either for the life that is to come or for this life. We are rooting our loyalty either in the life that is to come or in this life. We are living either for the life that is to come or we are living for this life. And this is not new and this is not different. This goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. This is why we see the divergence of posterity. This is why it traces Cain's line. It doesn't trace Cain's line all the way to the flood. Only traces Cain's line to Lamech and his sons. There's no need to trace past that point because at that point we get the point. That was a group of people who had devoted themselves to living for this life. Not just in this life, but for this life. And then we trace the line in the Bible of the righteous. Why? Because the Bible is trying to get us to Jesus. When Moses was penning these words thousands and thousands of years ago, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit had him pen what he penned so that we would be able to trace an unbroken line of those who loved the Lord, who called upon the name of the Lord, who chose to have their portion of the life that was to come, bringing us all the way to Jesus, who is the pinnacle of that. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of that kingdom. That is the life that is to come. And his kingdom shall come. His will shall be done. And it is in this conviction that God's kingdom will come and God's will will be done that predisposes us not to place our love and our loyalty on the things of this life because they are fleeting and you cannot take them with you. 
So we live for the life that is to come. So that when we do have that decision to make, where I don't know what to do, and I'm trying to make a decision, I predispose myself unto humility, not because humility is going to give me the best opportunity to succeed in, in, in the portion in this life. As a matter of fact, there's not all that many times where humility is the way to succeed if you want your portion in this life. Characteristically speaking, you want your portion in this life, you run over those that you can run over and you gain as much as you can, as best you can, at the expense of whoever is gullible enough to not be able to handle that or weak enough to not be able to handle that. And yet, as I live and as you live, when we come to those, those choices and we say, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble and we choose the humble way, we are choosing the portion of the life that is to come. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be that go in thereat. Narrow, straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life and few there be that find it. Every day we're making choices. And if we believe that God's kingdom shall indeed come, if we believe that God's will shall indeed be done, there is no question that this will direct our hearts unto a certain subset of choices. We will have our priorities upon the kingdom of Christ. Conversely, if we don't believe this, if we do not believe that God's kingdom will come, if we do not believe that God's will will be done, well, then why should we direct our choices for that kingdom? Instead, we'll direct our choices for the things that are in front of us, for the things that are tangible, for the things that I can see a noticeable effect today. As with Cain and Abel, so too with us. The reason why the way to destruction is broad and the way to life is narrow is not because God wants most to be destroyed. It's not because God has ordained most to be destroyed. The reason why the way of destruction is broad and the way of life is narrow is because most men will choose to have their portion in this life. It's because that's what most people will choose. And very few will be willing to set aside their portion in this life. That doesn't mean you have to be poor. But what it means is that it's on the altar. It's yielded for the portion of the life that is to come. That's that narrow way. The reason why that way is so broad is not because God has predisposed people to evil. It's not because our genetics demand that we be evil like our parents or like our grandparents or whoever it might be, like our culture. But it's because most people will choose their portion in this life. The dynamics of this choice as it relates to those who have no access to the Bible and all of those things. You say, well, pastor, what about them? You say it's about choices, but there's a lot of people that don't have the Bible. There's a lot of people that don't know these things. That's for another day. If you're very confused about those things, I've talked about it before. Come and see me. But you and I aren't that. We have access to the Word of God. We are studying now about this divergent of choices where Cain and his line chose their portion in this life. They excelled at the things of this life, but they did so at the expense of the life that was to come. And then Seth and his line began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
as it relates to you and I, as it relates to us, we come to this point of decision. We turn our eyes inward, not outward. We seek in our own hearts the degree to which we are following these two legacies. There is the legacy of Cain. The legacy of those who, at the expense of any sort of con, uh, um, principles or context of the kingdom, will do what we will do in this life simply because it's what we want to do. And then there's the legacy of Seth, the legacy of his line, the other path along the journey, the path that begins to call upon the name of the Lord, the path that recognizes that there are these things in this world and we are living in this world and we will use these things, but we will not abuse these things. We will be in this world, but we will not be of this world. And that will not necessarily lead to the most success in this world. But that this world will pass away and all the things in it. But the things that we do for eternity are eternal. Two paths, two choices, both clearly marked. And that is what Genesis is attempting to do. That is why we see these genealogies. That is, that is the thematic elements that are undergirding what Genesis is presenting to us here. Two choices. Two choices that will not just continue all throughout the scripture, but two choices that will continue through every generation to our generation today. The choice to have our portion in this life or the choice to have our portion in the kingdom that is to come. And it is with that question on our minds... Is our heart defined by this contriteness, this brokenness, or is it devoted to our portion in this life? It is with that question that we leave Genesis chapter 4 behind. Genesis 4 has made that distinction now, and it's going to carry forward in the distinction of the righteous, and it's going to show the rewards of righteousness, and we'll see those things in the time to come. Cain and his posterity, the portion of this life. Seth and his posterity, the portion of the life to come. But it brings us even now to our own point of decision, where are we? we along those two legacies? Where is our portion? Is it in this life? So that when we stand before God one day, we'll have plenty of things that we did in this life, we'll have plenty of success, and we'll have plenty of, uh, of, of uh, um, assets and whatever else. We'll have those things, earthly relationships, those sorts of things, but we'll have nothing to show for it eternally. Or, We'll stand before the Lord, and whether we have those assets or not, those assets, those relationships would have been on the altar before the Lord, and when we stand before Him, we will say, I lived for the kingdom of God, and this is what I have to present to my Lord that is rooted in the promises of eternity. I lived according to the Word of God. I lived according to the principles of God. I lived for His kingdom, not for the kingdom of this world. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.